so if we reimagine policing coupled with the nonprofits that are already out there dealing with um, you know certain um, certain entities or certain groups of people out there, I really think that we could probably de-escalate and not have to use force as as often. And at the same time, it gives officers the opportunity to see a certain group of people in a different light just by watching how the nonprofits handle um, their, their clientele. It's an incredible honor to serve our community in such a unique way. As we listen and research, as we visit with people representing every type of background you can imagine, as we take in stories, stories of triumph or despair, as we all ride these incredible times together, we recognize that at the end of the day, those committed to doing good want to be able to have honest and balanced conversations that offer real solutions for all. Here's where we come together to do just that. Welcome to The Balanced Voice. I'm your host, Rania Mancarius. Special thanks to our podcast sponsors, Brigitte and Bashar Kalai, Hallie Vanderheider, and Sippy and AJ Karana. Welcome to The Balanced Voice. Today, we are thrilled to have Dr. Stephanie Powell, Director of Law Enforcement Training and Survivor Services for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. To learn more about Dr. Powell, go to nsexualexploitation.org or follow her on Twitter at Stephanie underscore doctor or LinkedIn at Stephanie Powell ED. Dr. Powell, we are thrilled to have you today for so many reasons. There are so many different things that we are going to be talking to you about. Obviously, we're thrilled to talk to you about human trafficking, but you are a former LAPD officer, um, retired as a sergeant, I believe, with 30 years of experience. So I've got to talk to you about law enforcement in the community. But first, welcome to The Balanced Voice. Thank you so much. It is an honor to be here. Okay. So I mean, what we're seeing right now, 2020 has been a year unlike any other. Um, the uprisings in, in the streets, people, um, you know, calling for defunding law enforcement. Uh, you, again, 30 years with the LAPD department, um, you were the senior lead officer in the Foothill area during the Rodney King incident in 1991. You had an up-close, face-to-face experience at that time. From an officer's perspective, from your perspective, what are your thoughts about what's going on right now? You know, it really saddens me to see what's going on, um, to let, you know, because as we know, this, this latest um, strain of, of issues came as a result of George Floyd. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to find that, it's interesting to find that um, one police department mistake can now trigger something nationwide. And as I was watching it, I thought about the work that we did after the Rodney King incident, meeting the Los Angeles Police Department. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is gonna undo all of the work that we have done to to build up where people started to, in in some ways, um, see, and in some places, see law enforcement in terms of a partnership with community-based policing. I think that there's always room for improvement. I think that um, most departments have recognized that there is an issue 
when it comes to the um, these departments, um, and therefore they've tried to fix it. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of room to. There's still a lot of room. There's still a lot of need for for improvement. In terms of defunding the police, I think there are some things, some things that could be handled by civilian personnel. Not all things. So I'll just give an example. Um, when you look at something like, um, let's say, like human trafficking or dealing with um, mental health issues, um, if, if law enforcement can have a partnership with a nonprofit organization and have that advocate, just like we do with um, the DART program, you know, having a, um, a response team of civilians to go in to that call, and if they have the ability to, to do it, they could de-escalate an issue where now you don't have law enforcement having to use force, only because that nonprofit would have the, um, that victim center approach, they already would know how to deal with um, um, uh, people that have mental health issues or victims of human trafficking, just as an example. And so that would help to de-escalate things. So if they were to use some of the funding that the police department has to hire those civilians, you know, I think that would be great. So we're talking about a movement of resources, not completely eliminating um, the funding for police departments. Um, I just think that that just needs to be well thought out. Because at the end of the day, we as a society need police. We just do. And in our culture, you know, we have some issues with, with, with gun violence and, and violence in and of itself. You wouldn't want a, an unarmed civilian to handle something like this. So we still need um, a police department to be able to help us with this issue. But I really believe that if we re, I, I, I like to use the word reimagine policing. So if we reimagine policing, coupled with the nonprofits that are already out there dealing with, um, you know, certain, um, certain entities or certain groups of people out there, I really think that we could probably de-escalate and not have to use force as, as often. And at the same time, it gives officers the opportunity to see a certain group of people in a different light just by watching how the nonprofits handle um, their, their clientele. So I know that's a, a, a long answer, but I really think that that's helpful. And as we get, if, and in talking about Rodney King, um, one of the things that we did with LAPD, you know, the Christopher Commission, for those that you don't know, that don't know, um, the Christopher Commission came in. They looked at LAPD to see what were we doing wrong and what were, what were we doing right. We really focused a lot on community relations. So what I did as a senior lead officer, and I actually had the area where the Rodney King incident took place. And I went in and I um, met with the churches. I met with the gang members. Um, and we actually started doing that before the riots actually happened. And so we built a relationship. I got to choose what officers um, actually worked that area. And I, and I purposely chose officers that really were into wanting to have a relationship with the community. 
And as a result of that, when the riots actually happened, Bacoima and Lakeview Terrace, where the incident happened, did not burn. Because I went to the community and said, hey, you know, we have to make sure that these riots don't come into Lakeview Terrace and, um, and Pacoima. And as a result, that I had, the gang members that I had been working with actually went in front of the stores and kept people from, from breaking in and, and burning the Community policing works. You just have to build that relationship before the incident happens. I can't agree with you more. You've said so much there that I want to unpack a little bit. Um, one, I'll just start community policing. I'm, we're very proud in Houston of our chief, um, Chief Art Acevedo, because he's been about community policing from day one. Uh, well before George Floyd's death, he's just it's been his sort of MO since the beginning. And I think Part of the reason why Houston, in the aftermath of George Floyd, and certainly there were riots everywhere across the country, and there were marches here. We know 60,000 people, maybe 70,000 people came here for um, a, a march. There wasn't, it didn't escalate to violence because I think our chief did a very good job of making the community feel heard. And it wasn't the first time they saw him. They had been seeing him out and about. He's, he's very engaged. But I want to talk about sort of the different things you're bringing up. One, I have had personally a hard time with community sort of punishing police for stepping into social issues. You mentioned human trafficking, there's mental health issues. I think it's important to say that society gave law enforcement that task. You know, we, we sort of built it up that law enforcement, we need law enforcement you, to come and deal with homelessness, mental health, these social issues that we don't know how to deal with. So I, I hate any sort of punishment when we're the ones that ask them to do it now. You're right, reform is needed. Um, and I think the areas that you hit on are really, really poignant and really, really key areas where we can see these differences and in, in nonprofits like Crime Stoppers and so many others are community driven and out there trying to bridge the gap and serve that need. But it does take time. So what I worry about is this move to sort of defund. I know in New York, they looked at $1 billion. In LA, they looked at $153 million. Um, Houston, in my opinion, has already been defunded in the sense that we don't even have enough officers here for a city of our size. We have 5,300 officers in, in Chicago, which is almost neck and neck in terms of population size, there are 13,000 officers. We already don't have the resources, but I like your notion of building, building the community up. And so when you started your answer by saying, you know, unraveling of all the things you put in place um, following Rodney King, how can we stop that unraveling? How can we just build from where we are and sort of flip the narrative, not, you know, turn the page. Law enforcement is our partner. We we can always do better. Everybody can do better. But how do we flip the page so we're now sort of hand in hand, like you did through your leadership? And, and you were named woman of the year by the California State Assembly, by the way, for your work after Rodney King. Um, how do we get the nation on a new page so that we can be working together? Man, you know what? It, it, again, as I, as I look at it, it's time sensitive, right? We got to keep in front of it. Um, one of the things, I mean, keep in mind, as I talk about this, this is not interest. This is not easy. The community hated LAPD. And so, um, I was started helping my counterparts 
my other senior leads in South Central, which was extremely volatile. And we had to sit through those meetings and get called everything but a child of God. And we had to keep going to the meeting. Um, we had to keep extending that olive branch. Um, and that becomes the, the tough part. But it's got to be the officers that fully understand the community. Um, and it, 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 you know what? It's even better when you have officers that are from the community. You know, if the officers are looking like the people that are having issues, it does become a little easier. Um, because then you could say, you know what? I have the same concerns when my son gets stopped by the police. I have to have the same conversation with my son of what to do when you're stopped by the police and what to do and how to report misconduct. And, and then you need to have your... Um, law enforcement executives to be right on board. Because if you go out and tell the community, hey, look, we take police misconduct seriously. Therefore, we encourage you to report. Now, if they go and report and nothing gets done, you just have undone any type of credibility that that officer, any ground that he has gained or she has gained out there in the field. So I think that, that that's that part is extremely important, having the ability to do what you say that you have the ability to do, and the community needs to see change. You have spent so much time on education. You created and facilitated team building and exercise, executive leadership workshops based on positive change dynamics for the fire and police departments. You're an adjunct assistant professor of behavioral sciences at Los Angeles Trade Technical College. I think it needs to be said that law enforcement doesn't take interactions with the community lightly. And there seems to be this idea that they, that potentially show up on a scene in full authority, having little regard for the person they're interfacing with, um, with the only objective of showing their position. And I've talked, we've talked to enough law enforcement, maybe that's there's some merit there. I don't know. But my point is that we've talked to enough law enforcement that say the community doesn't understand that even at a routine traffic stop, we are in fear of our own lives. So we take it very seriously. We are not, our goal and objective is not to harm and it's, it's not to prove power. It is to just figure out what we're dealing with. Is that what you would say? Or do you have a different opinion about that? You know, wanting to go home at, at the end of the day. I think officers showing, and, and that's why the interaction with the community, when nothing is going on, like you will see on YouTube, and it just always warms my heart, you know, the white officer that is that is, is working in a black community and he gets out of his car and he's playing a little basketball with the kids. You know, um, you know, you know, those type of things, just to be able to show that you're human too. Because then when some, so if they already know you and you say, hey, you know what? At the end of the day, I, I'm not trying to overcome anybody. All I'm trying to do is keep you safe and go home at the end of the day. If that community already knows you, then they're going to also feel that it's important for you to go home at the end of the day. So one of the things that we looked at is, is with our community policing was having the same officers working the same area, getting out of that car and doing a foot beat, knowing the, uh, the store owners, 
going to that neighborhood watch meeting, going to those church activities, you know, when they're having, um, you know, a, a church activity and going in there and, and, you know, eating cake and dessert. They get to know you. So then when something happens, first of all, they're going to start calling you when stuff is going on in the neighborhood. If you stay true to your word, then when something big happens, they'll even protect you. I walked, I walked the project by myself. And was I a little tense? Was I like, should I be doing this? But after a while, I got to know people. I didn't walk it long, but I walked it long enough where they saw that I wasn't in there looking to arrest anybody. I really was looking to keep them safe and to build relationships. You will often hear officers say, look, I'm not a social worker. They're not a social worker. That is not what their job is. So that's why I say, um, it, it, and I'll give Journey Out as an example. When I was executive director of Journey Out, which is a, um, a nonprofit that deals with adult victims of human trafficking, where I saw the gap was that when vice officers had a victim of human trafficking, they didn't know who to call. The best they got was they would give them a, a little flyer that had all the resources on there. But I was thinking, what if we filled the gap with having a survivor working alongside um, LAPD vice units so that when they had a victim of human trafficking, they called us. And so I would often tell them, look, you deal with the investigative end of, of finding and arresting a pimp. We will do the social worker aspect of it in terms of finding her housing, making sure that she gets to court, being at, you know, at court with her. If there's any issues that arise, we will be able to take them. So I think that that type of model really works well because now the victim sees the officers care enough to have an advocate work with them, right? And so she, she or he's probably going to be a little bit more, you know, cooperative. So I think it's those type of things, but this stuff can't happen overnight. It's, you know, it's going to take time to build that trust. Because at the end of the day, what the community wants is for officers to keep them safe, that the justice system is fair to them just like anybody else, and that excessive force is not used um, because the officer is, is um, either too afraid or through implicit bias sees that person in, in differently. And the last thing that I, that I really think is important in this conversation is that when we talk about, because often we talk about uh, systematic or systemic racism, right? And that is real. But here's the deal. All aspects of that system need to be fixed, meaning the educational system, the foster system, um, social services, because law enforcement ends up being in play when all of these systems are broken, right? So we're asking law enforcement to fix a problem where really they are at the end of all the broken systems, and that's when law enforcement has to come in. And I think that that needs to be recognized by everyone. You know, it goes back to what you were saying. You know, not every officer is a bad officer, and they're not. Are there bad officers out there? Absolutely. But there are a lot of good ones. And I, you asked me how officers feel. And, and how they feel 
is that they are being painted with the same broad brush because there are officers that will save your life regardless of what you look like, period. That's what they do. All they want to do is catch the bad guys and protect their, their community. And at the same time, so many of them understand the importance of, of community relations. It's got to be an effort by both the community and law enforcement. I, I echo and agree with literally everything you're talking about. And it makes me, it brings back your words, sort of reimagine, reimagine, you know, police departments. Um, I'm, I want to, expand on that now and talk a little bit about human trafficking or talk a lot about human trafficking in the sense that, you know, as you talk about bringing in a nonprofit that might deal with an adult victim, and I feel like we've made so much progress in terms of this issue. And even uh, maybe five or six years ago when I you know, was still working here, people would say, well, prostitutes, that's their business. Um, but, you know, some people complain. It was sort of just like they've chosen this line of work. We don't think it's great. Uh, it's all criminal and that's it. And now we're realizing that that people are not prostitutes. They're uh, nine times out of 10 prostituted and that they're working at the hands of somebody else um, and they are victims. Uh, I like what you're talking about when you talk about when law enforcement makes an, an arrest um, and now you have an adult human trafficking victim on your hands. A lot of the questions we get in the community are police officer will make an arrest and the victim will find any way to go back to their pimp or go back to a trafficked lifestyle. We've spent so long educating the community that these are victims, that they are living a horrific reality. And then we are, law enforcement makes an arrest there's a potential to save them and the victim goes right back. What could you walk us through some of the misunderstandings about the nature of human trafficking from the victim's perspective? You know, what's, what's interesting and um, I, I, I'll talk about it from the victim's perspective, but I'll talk about it just for a second for the law enforcement perspective. So, you know, as we know, there are push factors in the human trafficking. It could be that they have a pimp or it could be a push factor. It could be poverty, right? where they don't have a pimp, but they're out there, what we call renegades. But they're out there because of the push factor of poverty. And that's why it's so important for nonprofits to be able to uh, find jobs and housing. Because if they have jobs and housing, they're not going to be out there on the streets for one. And, and the other thing is that it, it, it took a while, and I'll talk about LAPD for just a moment, but it took a while for them to understand that if someone is a victim of human trafficking, that they should not arrest them that they should help find services for them. And so what I found was the easier you made it for them to find um, um, services, the faster the, the officers were like, okay, got it. This is not really problematic. And what, we're able to catch bad guys too? So it, 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 you know, that, that part really helped. As it pertains to a victim of human trafficking, and I was just talking to a survivor yesterday, is that, and I think this is something that nonprofits need to understand too, that even though you're, you're dealing with somebody and you put all of that effort, you put all of that work in, and then they go back. You know, I always say, please know that your efforts have not just gone by the wayside. She just was, she or he was just not ready yet 
But when they get ready, they will always remember the words that you have said to them, the effort that you have put into them. Because what you have done, you have planted the seed. So even if they're dealing with law enforcement and they're not ready right now, when they are ready, they know that, again, relationships. They have set up a relationship with Sergeant so-and-so or Officer so-and-so. And so when they're ready, they're going to make that phone call. And it's great for law. Well, I'm so sorry, but I want to just, I want to talk about that for a second. Why would they not be ready? If they're dealing with abuse, I understand that there are victims that are in love. They think that their pimp is their boyfriend. The pimp is the person who has fed them and clothed them, even if it's in horrific circumstances. But is that the only reason they wouldn't want to leave or is there something else going on? Because I don't understand why they wouldn't rush to, for, for safety and security. Okay, so they, I'm glad you asked that question because they are just like a domestic violence victim. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same trauma bonding. It's the same emotional bond. You know, people will say, well, why do, you know, we have a shelter here. You know, you've been beaten up with your husband. Why would you not want to stay? Right. And remember, just like with domestic violence victims, it takes six to seven false starts before they are really ready. Now, think about this for one moment. So this person and and think about the withdrawals, how traffickers are able to draw people into their their clutches, so to speak. Right. Here, I I remember there was a, a pimp. He wrote a book. And here's what he said. He says, so how you get a girl is that, he says, if you cannot find a weakness, you create one. So keep in mind, they are looking for that weakness. They are looking for that low self-esteem. And then they they fill that gap. So if I'm already feeling bad about myself and I don't know how to feel good about myself, I've got someone telling me that I'm beautiful, I'm telling somebody that, that someone's telling me that they love me. They're the only one that is, that's, they're the only one that will love me. And then they will run off all, all of my faults, all of my weaknesses. You know, if I have a gap in my tooth, you know, no one else is going to love you but me because I don't care about that gap in your tooth. You, you see what I mean? So it, so, so now they've gotten beat up. They go to the police. The police say, hey, I have a nonprofit that will be able to work with you. We will be able to put this guy in jail. The minute you say that, it's just like the domestic violence victim because she's going to be protective of him, even though she's sitting there talking to the officer with a broken nose. Mm. If I had not, if I had just made enough money, he would not have had to break my nose. It is my fault, right? Or even if she's mad, and she goes with that nonprofit. Remember, the nonprofit is going to say she cannot talk to him anymore. She cannot use the telephone, right? She is not going to be able to have her own money. Now she becomes dependent solely on that um, um, nonprofit. If she is not ready, all those things are going to become a hindrance, and she's going to go right back. And not only is she going to go right back with the threat of getting beat up again, she's going to go back uh, apologizing profusely about the mistake she met when she left. It is so incredibly complicated because 
some of these victims of human trafficking are also, and I can speak for, for when I was at Journey Out, 80 to 90% of them were abused as children. So their brokenness did not start at the time they met that pimp. That pimp capitalized on their brokenness. Have you seen it evolve? Yeah, because that's what, you know, people talk about children in CPS and they talk about homeless kids uh, as just prime picking and it breaks my heart for these traffickers. And in recent years, we're seeing a new side of that where families say we mom and dad live at home. We have two kids and a dog. My kids go to private daughters, go to private school and didn't know that they were talking to a trafficker on Snapchat who was watching them for a year and took a chance to abduct them. So I feel like the landscape is expanding. And what really scares is scary to hear you say is the quote, if you cannot find a weakness, you create one because you, you know, at first it's like, it's a, it's an issue of poverty. It could be an issue of child abuse as a child or child neglect, but we're also seeing that it's expanding to just anyone that catches the eye of a trafficker. Are you, would you agree with that statement or is that exactly? Absolutely. And what comes to mind is this could be anybody's daughter or son. It doesn't matter. You know, I've had you know, clients who their parents were, were doctors or they were uh, police captains and they had no idea that their daughters um, had come into the grips of a trafficker. Think about social media for just one moment. Social media has opened up a world, right? And so um, someone can get to somebody regardless of whether they're behind Golden Gate or they live in the project. The world has become open through social media. And there's this false sense of trust in social media. You ask a kid who's a gamer, and you say, who are you playing a game with? I'm playing with my friend Joe. Well, who's your friend Joe? They don't know Joe. But because they're playing with Joe on the Internet, Joe now is suddenly their friend. So there's this false sense of trust. And and one thing that I I really want... um, people to understand is our kids, meaning, you know, those that are in the bracket of maybe middle class, upper middle class, or in the 1%. We, and police officer kids too, especially police officer kids, we really, because we see so much, we really overprotect the child, right? So we say, okay, no social media. We need to speak your friends first. We try to do all the right things to really take away the ability for them to get hurt. But sometimes we protect them too much that they are not able to navigate the real world. And in our world, we trust everybody, right? Um, because we're in, that, we're in that bubble. But what happens when your child now goes away to school? Mm. Because, uh, you know, one thing that is absolutely real is that these predators are um, recruiting college students, right? So they might meet them at a party. Because they don't go up to them and say, hey, my name is Bubba, I'm a a trafficker and a pimp, and I like you. It's not going to happen like that. It might be that romance. You might have that, that, that teenage girl that has always done the right thing. But she also is kind of drawn to um, a, maybe a lifestyle that she is completely unfamiliar with 
but it looks cool on TV. It looks cool on the a rap video, right? Um, and wanting to be drawn to that world. And what's interesting is they get to that world and they realize it's not what they're seeing on television, but that it's, it's too late, right? And so I think that some of, sometimes our daughters and sons are ill-prepared because they are in that protective bubble and they're considered to be green, right? So these chimps know that they're green because they don't know anything and they're absolutely trusting. And just because you have the picket fence, the two-parent home and the dog, it does not mean that your child is not suffering from low self-esteem. And when we talk about social media, we know that there are studies out there that perpetuate low self-esteem because I'm not that size three or I don't look like the, the that beautiful girl or why am I not getting enough likes? How many times have our daughters, and I can speak for mine as well, has taken a picture, put it on social media, and then we'll go back and see how many likes she got. We've all done how many, that. How many yeah. people are following them on Twitter? So, you know, we have to take all of this into consideration. And we have to teach our kids not just how to keep from getting, um, um, uh, how, do, how to not, it's not just about human trafficking, right? It's about setting boundaries. It's about having high self-esteem. Because when all those are in place, that's like kryptonite to a trafficker. He's not going to do that much work. He's looking for someone who needs to be in love, who needs to want to do a certain lifestyle, who have those needs. Those are the easy ones. I, given the fact that we know that our kids do live online and access, a predator's access to a child is right there, you know, just a click of a button. Um, I know that we, I was just reading a study actually put out by you guys that uh, the National Center on uh, Sexual Exploitation, or at least you guys shared it, that said online solicitation of kids this year, just 2020 first six months, has gone up by 93%, 93%. And it's making me think a lot about the environment and the appetite um, for, you know, youth and the appetite for just sexuality in general. I think it's just increased. What I, I was just reading... Senate Bill 145 in California, the pedophile bill was passed by a six to two vote, which seemed to say it will no longer be a felony to have sex with a minor in California. Is that a result of the world that we're in? How, how have we come to that place? Wow. Okay. You just told me something that I didn't know. What is that bill again? Because I'm going to have to look that one up. I'm sorry. Senate Bill 145, it's the pedophile bill in California, recently passed in a six to two vote, stating it would no longer be a felony to have sex with a minor in California. And the terms, uh, we have to do some digging into in, ter in terms of what are the guidelines here, but I don't like the direction we're going as a nation. I don't like the direction. You, you know, I'll tell you what, that bill I don't know, but I'll tell you the direction that we are going and everybody on a nationwide basis really needs to, um, to, to pay attention to this, is the, the total decriminalization of prostitution. So total decriminalization, what that means is 
that no one would go, and it's very controversial, um, that no one would go to jail with anything that was prostitution related. And now we're talking about adults right now. So that means pimps, John, and the girls that are out there working. Um, so you asked, how do we lead to the bill that you're talking about? This is kind of an example of something that we really need to pay attention to. They tried to pass it in Washington, D.C., but you had so many uh, survivors of human trafficking um, that actually went to that hearing and said, no, we are not going to do that. And they had um, um, a nine-year-old victim that testified, and it turned the whole thing around. Vermont is looking at it right now, um, and New York is looking at it right now. So, so you know why? why because, does so here's what, here's what they're saying. So here's the other side of this. And this is like a whole nother show, to be honest with you. What they're, what they're looking at is they're saying, okay, um, you have so many. Remember we talked about um, uh, uh, human trafficking and prostitution being driven by poverty. And so if it's being driven by poverty, and if for some women that is their way out of poverty or that is their way of survival, they're now being arrested for something that they're just trying to survive. Um, but this would also include like transgender people who have a hard time finding jobs anyway, just by the mere fact that they're transgender. And this is not all transgender people. Dr. Powell, I just want to make sure I understand. Are you saying that their effort is to de decriminalize all related activities of the prostitute? Because I do agree on some level that needs to be done. But I'm worried about if you're talking about the pimp and the buyer, you're not talking about the pimp and the buyer. So for total decriminalization, that includes the pimp and the buyer. If you're talking about partial decrim, because that's what you're describing right now, where the people that would, it's like the Nordic model. The people that would go to jail would be the buyers and the pimps. There's also a model out there that I kind of am partial to is the, the um, equity model. Because that means that those that are, um, that are into, or those that are um, prostituting themselves, they don't go to jail. But with that equity model, it also has a built-in place where services would be provided for those that want to get out. So the thing to look for is those laws that are for total decriminalization. Those are the ones to look out for. And also, the Earn It Act is another one. You can find that on Incozy's website as well. And that addresses the Internet. Because in, in the Internet, there are so many places where there are uh, no filters, there are no laws. It's kind of like the wild, wild west. And so the Earn It Act is one of those things that's in legislation, um, or we try to put in the legislation right now, where there are some, um, there's some buffering um, as it pertains to the internet. Because just like you said, our kids, especially during COVID, they are online a lot, right? And not only does it open the door for um, pedophiles and human trafficking, but it also opens up the doors for them to see pornography, mm. right? I was reading a study where it said that both children end up being introduced to pornography even at the early age of seven. Because remember, things start to pop up. So all they have to do is click on it. 
And you have some children that unfortunately have become um, addicted to, to porn. And think about just this for just one moment. You have Chromebooks that are being uh, given to children, right, who do not have internet or do not have um, computers. You know, parents, unfortunately, they're trying to work their job, make sure that their kids are on the internet at school. They're not able to watch over their shoulder to see everything that they are doing with the computer. So we are in an age right now where it becomes the perfect storm for our children to be able to, where people have access to our children more than ever through the, through the internet. And, and so parents just need to make sure that those filters are built in. Your parents need to make sure that kids are not locked up in a room doing their work on the computer and you not, or at the very least you're popping in just to see what are they working on. You know, when school is over, you know, um, maybe shutting it down for a few, you know, for a little while. And if they, because here's the other thing, and, and, and my daughter taught me this when my daughter's 23. She said, Mom, you know what? When parents punish their kids by not allowing them to get through social media, she says one of the things that has to be remembered is that is their social life. I say that I agree. I say that all the time. I think it's not necessarily the right solution to remove the the tool that kids use to socialize. But to your point, parents should be equipping kids with the information. Parents still need to be parenting. They need to be making sure safety parameters are in place. I love you guys, um, I think, reached out to Google to see if the Chromebooks given to kids across this country could be come preset with filters and security measures. And my understanding from following you guys is Google did not agree to do that. So that means that parents have, you can't just take the Chromebook and think, oh, it's from the school. For sure, it's safe. Like they actually have to go in and make sure. Yes. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Yes. That's one of the things that we are, are doing and really fighting for. Um, and and you can go on our website because we, we, we could use your help needs to hear from the parents as well, not just us saying it, right? But you're absolutely right. Um, when, you're, when, your child is given, when your child is given that Chromebook, please know that you have got to um, look and see what do they have access to because it's, it's not automatic. It just is not. And things pop up. I was just talking to my grandson, and he was talking about TikTok. And he, and he said, he says, you know, sometimes really bad things come up on, on TikTok. I really don't like it. He's nine. And we don't want that generation to become desensitized. And that's why the work you guys are doing is so important. And we thank you for being with us. And we encourage everybody listening to this to follow you, to follow the National Center on um, sexual exploitation. The website is endsexualexploitation.org. Uh, Dr. Powell, your work uh, as an officer, sergeant, creating what you've created for communities, uh, just till today and on is so valuable and so important. This has just been an incredible discussion. Thank you so much. You know, I live in both worlds. I care as an African-American woman, I care about the African-American community, but I also care a lot about the law enforcement community as well. 
And so operating in both worlds, I just hope and pray um, that we have the ability to reimagine the um, police department and to be able to, to work together because that's going to be the thing that's going to give us peace, sitting down at the table and talking. Well, we agree. And that's the point of the podcast, The Balanced Voice, is to bring people together for important conversations that actually yield to solutions. Because at the end of the day, we all just want to have a safe and healthy community. And uh, you are contributing to it every day. So thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for the work that you do as well. Thank you. Stay healthy and safe. We'll see you next time. Thank you for being on The Balanced Voice. If you missed anything from the show, check out the show notes at thebalancevoicepodcast.com. This episode was edited and mixed by the team at Real News PR. Our executive producer is Sydney Zyker. Our advising producer is Katie Myers. Our media and quality assurance director is Tanya Cruz. And finally, our creative design director is Elizabeth McChesney. To find out more information about Crime Stoppers of Houston or to get involved with our prevention programming, please visit us at crime-stoppers.org. You can find us on Instagram at The Balanced Voice Podcast, and you can find me online at The Run Your Report.